we like to blame somebody else. And we always like to blame the man in charge, right? Whether it's on your workplace, whether it's at your home, you're like, yo, that's your kid. You want to blame somebody else that something else happened. But then when things are going well, we like to take all the credit. We always like to pass the buck when things are wrong. But when things are well, I want all that glory. I need all that. That's all for me. But the reality is when things are going wrong, where are we going? Who are we pointing the finger to? Who are we looking around at when things are going wrong? The scripture says we're supposed to do what? Look up. When in reality, some of us, when things are going wrong, we're constantly like grabbing at everything. Okay, well, if that doesn't work, then I need to try this. And if this doesn't work, then I need to try that. And if this doesn't work to blame this person, then I need to blame that person because it's, it can't be my fault. Uh, there's got to be something going on. There's, something's got to fix what's going on inside me. Something's got to fix what's going on around me. I've got to grab at something when God's people are supposed to be doing what? Looking up to the heavens. Looking up to their creator because God's got all the answers. You see, there's a group of people that you find throughout the book of the Old Testament, the, the books in the Old Testament. They're called the Israelites. They're God's people, God's chosen people that God handpicked and said, hey, this is the people who I'm going to bring my Messiah from. This is the people that Jesus Christ is going to come through their lineage, and he's going to be the savior of this world. He is going to rise up and do exactly what I need him for, to do that he's already been purposed to do. All right? So there's a group called the Israelites. Now, as I study and as I continue to preach the word, the Israelites, when I was a teenager, I used to think, yo, those Israelites, they're really stupid. They really don't know how to make the right decisions. But yet those Israelites, some of the coolest things of God's glory. If you think about it, the Israelites were in bondage for 400 some years in Egypt. All right. And they wanted to be free. They wanted to be free. They wanted to be free. Finally, God rises up Moses, a leader, all right, Moses, to prepare and get ready, we're, gonna, we're about to lead this Israelite group out of Egypt, okay? And so the Israelites are like, yeah, let's do this. And then finally, Pharaoh, after all this, you know, uh, the, the plagues and stuff, Pharaoh says, okay, yes, just get out of here. And the cool thing, the first thing that they got to see was that the Egyptians started giving every Israelite family a bunch of gold, a bunch of livestock. I mean, those Israelites, they were living like kings leaving Egypt. They literally took the wealth of Egypt right on out of them, and they didn't have to ask for it. They didn't have to beat them for it. They didn't have to fight them for it. But Pharaoh was like, just take it all. Just get out of my sight. You know why? Because he realized they serve something that he can't match up against. So being an Israelite, that'd be really cool to be a part of, wouldn't it? If my dad was given all this gold and all this livestock as we're leaving, what we used to call our torment and our torture, getting enslaved to, and now we're walking down the streets with all this fine garments. I'd be looking at my dad like, Dad, this is cool. This is good stuff. And, and hopefully my dad would say, yeah, that's because the God we serve. He takes care of us. That'd be like the first really cool thing. But then as they're walking, they're faced with the Red Sea, right? They're faced with the Red Sea. And so the Israelites are like, oh man, what do we do? And, then Mo- and God tells Moses, just you know, lift up your rod. And they're allowed to, the, the waters part, okay? And as the waters part, if I, I'm, I'm just trying to show you. If I was an Israelite, what I'd be thinking, I'd be like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. And then the waters go up and the Israelites walk through. It's one thing to have the waters be parted and to be like, man, you know, you do one of those like, What's going to happen if I put my first foot in? Like, is it everything going to crash down, you know? But God's, the scripture says that it, they walked on dry ground. Where water used to be sogging up that dirt, making mud, is now all of a sudden dry ground. So is, are, you, are you gathering what the Israelites are walking through? 
with the experience of God's glory that these Israelites are about to be a part of. So they walk through on dry ground, and I'm sure some of you guys would have been out there taking a selfie with the fishes and walking through, they're flying, swimming through the water, doing something. I got to show my friends this one. I got to show them. And so they walk on dry ground. And then you think that would be enough for the Israelites to realize we have the greatest God on the face of the earth. There is nothing my God can do, right? So then they're all in the Israelites, and then they start walking, you know, and then they're in the wilderness. And while they're in the wilderness, they know they're going to a promised land. They don't know where it's at yet, and they don't know where they're headed. Or they know they're headed there. They just got to try to get there. And if you actually take, you know, look at the journeys that the Israelites had to do before getting the promised land, they did like a complete circle around the land. And that's not because they were stupid. That's because God said they weren't ready for the promised land yet. So the Israelites, they're in the, the wilderness, and then God gives them manna from heaven, bread or cakes that they didn't have to make they didn't have to look up a recipe they didn't have to create anything they wake up in the morning bread's there they eat it they go to bed they wake up in the morning their bread's there they eat it they go to bed i mean it's not like the moms the housekeepers that's what i'm talking about but you think and but see that that's not even enough then they want meat so the moses goes to god god you know your people really are sick of this bread stuff what can you do next and then god says i'll give them fresh quail every morning now we're getting cooking. Fresh quail. I don't know if that's good, but it's probably good. So then every morning they go up, they get their bread, they get their meat. Now, yo, we don't have to go grocery shopping. We don't have to do none of that stuff. It's all set. And now they're thirsty. And so then they, what, what does Moses do? God, they, they, we're in this wilderness. Our wells are drying up. What's going on? God tells Moses to strike a rock. And what do they get from rock? Water. Water. These are the miracles that the Israelites were a part of. This is the stuff that I dream about to experience. Not that I want to go hungry, not that I want to be in a wilderness, but the idea of the fact that God can give me water from a rock if I really was thirsty. The idea that God can give me whatever I need on my front steps because he knows what I need. The fact that these Israelites, they were spoiled in my book. They got what they wanted, right? They complain, then God responds, all right? Now, granted, they had to go through a lot of trials, too, because of the complaining, okay? But then after that, then another leader is Joshua, and he actually is the one that leads them into the promised land because of Moses' disobedience to God, all right? And by that, I mean, we saw Joshua with the walls of Jericho, right? And they just came tumbling down without even shooting an arrow, okay, or without even blowing something up. This is the stuff the Israelites are experiencing, that's why I look at this like, the Israelites, they're stupid. I wish I was like that. I wish I had that stuff. So that's the background we're at. I'll kind of put it in perspective that we're talking about a people group that have experienced probably crazy, most ridiculous types of miracles that you probably have not experienced yet. All right? And that's this people group that we're talking about. They're God's chosen people. But after Joshua, the judges started ruling the Israelites. Um, there was judges set in place to take care of all the, the, you know, the civil duties and stuff like that and the governing. And as time progressed, Israelites started looking around at other nations in the desert, other nations around them, started figuring out what other people are doing. What not the Israelites are doing, but the Ammonites. What are they all about? What's that people group about? And as time progressed, they started to model and pick up ways of life that they watched from afar. And they were saying, you know what? I think I want to be like the other nations. And they, they say some things like this, all right? Oh, man, I look at what that group is doing. I want to start adopting that lifestyle into my camp, into my home. I want some of that. 
hey, I like the way they're dressing. I want to start dressing like that. They start talking a certain way. I want to start talking like that. They start experiencing life differently. They start picking up their lingo. They start having relationships with other people. They start like, yo, what's going on in that camp looks so much more fun than what's going on in my camp. I want that. And they started looking around. And what happened was they started really dabbling in the things of the world. And they started picking up things. And they say, you know what? I want that. Bring it here. But I still want God to be my provider. But I'm still going to put up this little bell, God, because I think he looks pretty cool. And I saw him do it. So if he did it, and I think he's cool, so I'm going to put a bell in my house too. I'm going to put a little graven image in my house. That just sounds right, right? If they're cool, they like it. I like them. So I'll do the same thing that they're doing. And I want to bring it home to my family. So that's what's going on. They're mixing God's theology with the worldly lifestyle. And how many of you know when you guys mix God's theology and pagan rituals, it's never going to end up good for you. It's never going to end up good for you. You might think for a season, yo, I can do this. But eventually it's going to catch up to you. You're going to find yourself down and out. How did I get here? But this is what happens when people lose focus of your king. We're going to read a few verses. Judges 17, 6. We're going to start with that one. And this is the time when the judges are ruling. It says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Judges 18, 1 says, In those days Israel had no king. Judges 19, 1, it says, In those days Israel had no king. And Judges 21, 25 says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Within a few chapters... It's continuously reiterated, Israel had no king. Israel had no king. Israel had no king. And what happens when people have no king? What do they start doing? They did what everyone else was doing. What everyone else was doing. See, the Israelites lost focus. They don't have Moses and Joshua anymore. They have all these judges. Uh, And then they have a prophet named Samuel who would come and relay messages. Hey, this is what God says. But then eventually they're like, hold up. I'm not sure if we want what we used to have. I want what the other people have. And what we're finding out is that other camps around us, other armies around us, they have this thing called a king. They have this thing. He's got a crown on his head. He's well taken care of. As we look at the Israelite camp, we're like, we don't have that. So the Israelites have this brilliant, really awesome idea in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And you can read it when you get home. I encourage you to read 8 through 12. And 1 Samuel 8, they come to Samuel. Yo, Samuel, I got this. I know how we're going to make it out of this. And they say, Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel is beside himself. He's like, in my terms, are you kidding me? You want a king? And they're all like, yeah, yeah, we need a king. We need a king. Look at this. Look at the group over there, the Ammonites. They're about to attack us. If we had a king, the king would tell us what to do. And we would be so strong. And we would be able to take out any opponent. And Samuel is so heartbroken that he has to go to God and say, God, your people want a king. Your people want a king. And what do we say? The Israelites wanted bread. What did God give them? The Israelites wanted water. What did God give them? The Israelites wanted to get free from slavery. What did God give them? Freedom. Well, guess what? The Israelites want a king. Guess what they're going to get? A king. What's really another level of stupidity in my book is... Samuel tells him, this is what the Lord says. In my paraphrase, he says, if you want a king, this is what the king's going to do for you, the Israelites. He's going to take part of your land. The king's going to take part of your money. The king's going to require you to pay him. The king's going to require your sons and daughters. He'll take your sons and daughters from you. That's what a king's going to do. 
and he's going to use them for his glory. He's going to use them in part of his kingdom. He's going to take them that, that he wants them. And he, like I said, and then he wants part of your land and stuff like that. And the Israelites, yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, that's so cool. I don't know about you, but if someone told me, hey, Pastor Joe, I'm going to take part of your land. I'm going to take part of your family. I'm going to take part of your inheritance. I'm going to take parts of your life from you because I'm your king. Guess what? I don't want that. But the Israelites are like, yo, that sounds so cool. Yeah. Last time I checked, if someone took my son, I don't think I'm going to say, yeah, that's cool. All right. Dawson comes to me and says, hey, Pastor Joe, you know what? I'm just going to take your entire backyard because I need to do this really cool filming thing. But it's mine now. Don't let your kids in the backyard anymore because I own it. I'm taking it from you. I'd be like, Dawson, you are what? And if he steps foot on my property, you know, uh, I'll call Matt up. You know, and Matt will take care of him, okay? But like, seriously, this is what Samuel said. This is what the king's going to do. And the Israelites are like, all for it. I still can't wrap my head around all that. But they all say, yeah, let's do it. First Samuel chapter 12, verse 12, Samuel tells them, as he's about to his farewell address, is that when you saw the king of the Ammonites moving against you, so meaning when chaos was coming, approaching the Israelite camp, when you saw this happening, you decided... We want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. You saw what the Ammonites had. Hold up. We need something different. We don't know what to do. We don't know who to even ask. So we just need a king so that that king can take care of us because they're going to come and destroy us. When in reality, their God in heaven already knew they were there. The God in heaven already knew how to set free the Israelites. Did they not win uh, battles over and over again? Could they not win another one against them? No, because they started dabbling in the things that they saw around them when things were going crazy. They started messing things up. They stopped living 100% for God. And they started living with trying to live this way, you know, on a Monday, on a Tuesday. But then on Wednesday night when they come to church, they wanted to live for God on Wednesdays. They saw that stuff happening. And that's why God said, hey, you'll get your king. You want your king? You got your king. That's what the king's going to do. And you know what? If you even look in the scriptures, it also says that God told the Israelites, if you ask for a king, you're going to get your king. But let me tell you, when you are upset and, you know, unrest with your king, I'm not going to help you. You mean to tell me, God, you're not going to help me after I saw what you did to the Egyptians back there, which means that I'm not on your side anymore, God. They all say, yeah. I don't get it. So that's why I asked you this morning, who's your king? Turn to your neighbor and ask, who's your king? See, I'm not sure about you, but when I was taught, I was taught not to follow the crowd. I was taught not to just do what everybody else is doing. That ancient old saying if everyone else jumps off the bridge are you going to do it too okay that was drilled into me you don't just follow people but that's what the israelites were doing they wanted to follow the other people around them because they thought they had the answer they thought they were missing out on something how many guys ever felt like you missed out on something all right missed out on something and i'm thinking of these things i don't know what it's like to get high yet i haven't experienced it but you know what maybe i should go out and go get some weed and figure it out. Oh, wait, you know what? I've never gotten drunk yet. And what I hear is that drunk people are really funny. So, you know what? Maybe I need to experience that because I want to be funny. You know what? Wait, I'm missing out on something. The parties that everybody goes to, the bars that everybody goes to, you know what? Maybe I need to go and just experience it. Because if I experience it, then I'll really know what it's like. Maybe I'm missing out on something. But the reality is, you're missing out on something maybe because you're not supposed to be a part of it. Maybe because it's going to be the very thing that's going to draw you away 
from your God in heaven. Or maybe your king really isn't God and your king is yourself and you're trying to please all your selfish desires. You're trying to please all your selfish wants and desires because you, know, you yourself become your own God. You yourself have become this own person. That, oh, as long as I'm happy. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that saying, as long as I'm happy. I'm sure Pastor Steve's heard it many times. In the ministry, you'll have, stu- have students come up to me and we'll talk and say, yeah, you know, my uncle's gay and he's really hoping that you know, we'll have gay marriage go through and all that stuff. As long as my uncle's happy. I'm like, wow. With abortions and stuff, you know, just as long as, as long as the mom's happy, as long as the dad's happy, as long as people are happy. If we're happy, it's okay, right? If I'm happy, if I'm satisfied, that's my ultimate desire, then I'm happy and I'm good. And I'll do whatever it takes to make sure I'm happy. Even if that means, that, you know, if I have to sell off my kid to get the drugs and the heroin, I'm good. This is the society that we live in. This is the generation that we've developed and we've become a me society entitlement. I should have what I want because I want it, and I shouldn't have to wait for it. I should get it now. It really is. And, and it's crazy to me because I thought it was bad when I was a student, and I look at it now, and I'm like, good night. Everybody just expects it. Everybody wants to be happy because we always feel like we're missing out on something. But let me tell you something. If you think about it, how many of you guys know Adam and Eve? All right. Adam and Eve. It's the first man, first woman, you know what I'm saying? So you have Adam and Eve. And how many guys have heard that and read that story and just always thought, man, if Eve would have not touched that fruit, right? Okay? And I know all the ladies like, yeah, but Adam did it too. Get Adam too. But yeah, agreed. If they both would have just not eaten the fruit. If I was Adam, I would tell my woman, woman, nah, not happening. Or say like we all say, if I was Adam and Eve, mm, nope, we would not do that. Let me tell you something. The devil is playing the same game he's played since Adam and Eve. And we are just as, okay, I'm sorry. I'm not going to put you, I am just as stupid as Adam and Eve is. And I am, honestly, I'm finding out I'm just as stupid as the Israelites are. Whom I said, how can you do this after you saw what God did? And now all of a sudden, you're going after something else. I'm learning we are all just as guilty. We're trying to go after things because it looks good. Trying to grab onto things because we lose focus of our king. The Israelites stopped looking up and started looking around. They began doing as they saw fit. Well, what fits you today? What fits your schedule? What fits your appetite? What fits your sexual desire? What fits your emotional desire? What fits your physical desire? What fits you that you can actually, ah, I just feel so happy right now. I feel so good about myself. Are you here this morning and doing what you see fit? Are you looking around rather than looking up for your answers. So this broke Samuel's heart because they realized that they were rejecting God himself as their king when they had access to God Almighty through the prophet Samuel. Friends, we are not much different than these Israelites. Look around in our world. Everything's an injustice. People are so easily offended. It's ridiculous. People are doing as they see fit. And if you don't join them, then you're a hater. This can be so troubling to the world because we expect this stuff to happen if you're not serving God. And this is where it's troubling in my spirit is that the church of God is falling for it. The church of God is actually rejecting God himself as their king and filling their desires with whatever pleases everyone else's itching ears. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 through 5 says this, For the time will come 
when people will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, or like the Israelites did, whatever they saw fit, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. For a time will come, friends, that people will not put up with the sound doctrine. And they're going to start picking and choosing what they want to believe out of the Word of God. And they're going to start adapting some other books along with it. They're going to start saying, you know what? Well, God wants us to live this way now. And we're going to change some things in our lives. And they're turning their ears and rejecting the truth and listening to myths. And then they're going to start following people like that. I mean, it's so easy. You know, like you have all you social media junkies out there. Okay? You can follow anything you want. You can create stories for anything you want. You pick and choose who to follow, don't you? You pick and choose whose stories you're going to want to update and check out. All right. So guess what? That means you're also picking and choosing the ones you don't want to see. You can block certain people. I encourage you, block people, block things that are not filling the spirit man, the spirit woman, the thing that God wants to feed in your life. Start blocking the things that are going to mess you up. Because the Bible says that if you don't keep the sound doctrine, you're going to start following other people. And you're going to be just as guilty as the Israelites trying to mix this way of living with what the world's got to offer. And you're just going to find yourself in a world of mess. You're going to find yourself being pulled at every angle. I tell the teenagers all the time, I say, you will never be a really happy, good sinner. And they're like, what do you mean? Because you've already been told the truth. You've already been told that, hey, what Jesus did for you, you already know that you've experienced God's love. You've already experienced every ounce of God's glory. And you, yourself, every time you take a drink, every time you go get high, every time you go party, every time you curse your mom out, every time you do something that's so against what God says, your heart's going to be really fast. You're going to feel like dirt. And then you're going to go and try to be a partier, be a sinner, and you're going to look at your friends. How can they be so happy? How can they be so fun? You know why? Because they haven't tasted the gospel yet. They haven't tasted the gospel yet. You're going to get so sick to your stomach. I was just having a conversation with a student about how when I prayed for my brother to get saved, I said, God, I pray that every time he touches drugs and alcohol, that he gets so sick to his stomach that he throw up, he don't ever want to touch it. And don't you know that when he got saved years after that, he told me, Joe, I don't know what happened. I just got to stop everything. I'm not feeling good anymore. I can't do it. And I said, brother, that's because I prayed that prayer for you. And he looked at me. He's like, what? He's like, you did what? And he, so he gets mad at me. He's like, how dare you do that? I said, no, look where you're at now. So ever since then, I say that prayer. So if you're in the house this morning and you think I think that you drink, guess what? When you get sick, when you get, you know, when you get high and you're getting sick, guess what? You can come and call my number and say, yo, PJ, I'm sick. I need to get delivered. I'm done with this garbage. Because that is the very thing that's going to motivate you to stop. It's not some organization. It's not your friends. It's going to be the power of God and people who pray for you. That is is what's going to establish some real validity of who God is in your life and your blessing. The life you live is going to be so much a whole lot better than you've ever dreamed of. So that's what the Israelites were doing. But here we are in a day and age that people do the same thing today, not listening to the sound doctrine. With the legalization of abortion for whether early term, late term, full term, whatever you call it, the transgender movement, homosexuality movement, the gay marriage movement, all this garbage, we allow these things to happen. You got... 
maybe allowing alcohol to have a place in your home, having sexual relations with whom you are dating, living together before married, you name it, whatever you're doing, whatever you might be thinking of, whatever you're plagued with, whatever you're involved with, if it feels good, satisfies my desire, it must be good. It seems to be helping that person over there, so it's got to help me do the same. But I asked you, who's your king? Students have to wrestle so much. One thing, and you'll probably get this answer from every youth pastor that you've ever met, if you ever meet a bunch of youth pastors, a question that always comes to us. You know, Pastor Joe, what's one of the hardest things, difficult things to deal with in youth ministry? And I look at the person, I say, you know what? It's parents. It's parents. And I'll tell you why. Because parents think, first off, let me tell you something. I'm a youth pastor. And we have awesome youth staff. These people have been set up to help guide your students. We are not taking the place of parents. Because I don't want a teenage son yet. I don't want a teenage daughter yet. Okay? I am not their parent. You are. So the very most difficult thing are parents. And let me tell you why. Because what happens is that we preach the word of God back there on Wednesday nights. We preach it upstairs in the Sunday school room. We preach the word of God because that's what I believe. That's what pastor believes. That's what we believe here. That this is the only book that we need to preach from. So therefore, when we're preaching the word of God back there, guess what? Lives are being changed. And this is different because in here, you're a bunch of adults, right? Or we have our teenagers in here. But you guys are like, oh, well, if I want to change, I'll change. If not, that's cool. But teenagers back there, they're getting it. They're understanding it. They're like, yeah, I want that. All right. So then they go home. They go home to a house. Some go to a home that mom and dad don't even go to church. And so now they're being taught, hey, we should really try to give up drugs. Don't smoke. It's good. Trust me. God doesn't want you to live like that. God wants you to just be dependent on him. Don't drink alcohol. It's okay because everyone's doing it. So we're telling our students, hey, don't have sex with your girlfriend. Wait till marriage. That'll be the best thing you'll ever do. God's promise and blessing will be better than you've ever thought. Uh, Your marriage will be the best. Don't look at pornography. It's not good for you. And I preach it there. But the reality, the parents, we think as parents, ah, I'm a parent. I'm an adult now. I can do what I want. Teenagers are being changed. They go home to a family where there is is allowed alcohol in the house. They don't mind their kids drinking alcohol as long as it's in their house. Some parents go ahead and buy pornography for their kids, allow them to rent all the movies they want or buy them, whatever, how you do them, as long as I know they're doing it. It's okay. They can do drugs. I'd much rather know that they can always come home to me because we do it here together. This is the stuff I deal with. So these students are wrestling. I live like this at church. I want to live it at home, but it's so hard because my mom and dad say it's okay. But I know Pastor Joe and Sam and Matt and Stacy and Becky and Mary and Mike. I know they all look at me. We shouldn't really do that. I know it's not okay with God, but it's totally okay with home. We really mess up our teens. Because they want to live for God, but then they go home and they don't know how to. Or they want to live for God and they go home to a Christian house where that stuff still goes on. That stuff still goes on. So then your Christian students, they're being torn. They're wrestled. What do I do? Honestly, parents, you want your kid to love God? You want your kid to come to church on Sunday mornings? You want your kid to be in church on Wednesday nights for the kids' services and the youth services? You want that? Guess what? You should be here. Don't drop them off. Don't just not go. What we do as parents is so important. And I know you know this, parents. But sometimes we get like the Israelites. We're just like, I'm just so tired because they look so cool over there. And, you know, on a Sunday morning, I would much rather my sleep than have to wake up all my kids and, and get them ready. For, you, know, you know, Saturday was a hard night. It really was. 
I went to the Phillies game, you know, and um, since we got back late, we're just not going to go to church on Sunday morning. It's, it's cool. My kids, they'll be all right. This is stuff we do. You have parents that, you know what, Wednesday nights don't work because I, I'm out every night of the week with work. I just want to be home Wednesday night. And then I get parents that get mad. I don't want to do my kid. They don't want to come to church. Well, um, you don't want to come to church. Why do you expect your kid to want to come to church if you don't come to church? See, one thing that my brother-in-law taught me before, was he gave me a bit of advice, and I live with it every day. He says, Joe, your students will only go as deep into God as you go. It means that your relationship with God your students will probably, I mean, you'll have the extraordinary, super spiritual, I'm just going to go after God no matter what, which is awesome. You'll have them supersede me because I'm not the king of kings. I'm just a man. But mostly the students will just do pretty much what I would do in my walk with God. Does that make sense? And as parents, you also know that your kids will only do up to where you're at. If your walk with God is down here and you're looking at your kid, I really wish my kid would love God. Your walk with God is right here. My dad and mom say they're Christian, but I never see him open a Bible. I never see him pray. And man, the language that comes out of their mouth when they fight, woo boy. And the students, if that's Christianity, I don't want it. If that's what's being modeled, I don't want that. That's the struggle. You know that we're not perfect. And trust me, as parents, let's not drop the ball. Let's make God the number one thing. Let's keep our focus on the king himself, and that's it. So when your kids are going through a hard time, when you're going through a hard time, don't just throw your hands in the air and look around and say, oh, well, this family from church did that, so I must tap into that. Or, hey, this family over there, you see the cars that they're driving? They must really know what to do. So I'm going to go over there and hang out with them. And then we start picking pieces from this family, from that family, from that way of life. We're just as guilty as the Israelites did when they said, hey, I want a king. That's what we're doing. So parents... Not to be so hard on you, but I am going to be hard on you, is the fact that we need to step up our game. Let your kids know that God is number one in your life. Let God know that. Make that declaration to God. And then let your kids know that. Because then your kids will see that in you. Now, I'm telling you right now, if you're like, you're like, you know, Pastor, you're right. I need to start implementing that in my life. Don't expect your kids to follow you right like that. Because they've seen you for years not walking with God. Now you're going to flip the script on them and say, oh, yo, we're, you're definitely going to church today. You are, yeah, you got to go to church. You got to get, mm-hmm. Don't do that. Because you're just going to mess up your kid. And you're going to just fight and keep pushing him. You show them the behavior you want your kid to follow. Your kids will follow. The Word of God says it. They have to. And if you're praying for them, they're going to. So who's your king? Tell your neighbor and ask who's your king. So Revelations 3, 15 through 22 says this. It says, I know all the things you do that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other since you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. You don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold for me. For gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. Also buy white garments for me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and anointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. Verse 19, listen up. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Verse 20, look, I stand at the door and knock. 
If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. And he would share a meal together. Verse 19, I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Turn from being indifferent. Stop making excuses. And what that means is, say, God, I'm going to make you number one, and you are my king, and that is it. I'm not going to go after something else. I'm not going to go after what everyone else is going after. Even if they look like a good person, I don't care. Your word says that I don't do it. Guess what? You don't do it. If your word says do it, then guess what? I'm going to do it. I was just telling our teenagers, if I can just bottle up the teenage mentality of this, when you think of something, just do it. We were out on convention. The teenagers think of something, and they just act on it, which is probably what drives a lot of parents crazy. But it's the very thing that I wish adults still had. It's the very thing, because we had Noah. He's the man, and he's like, I see this big pillar thing. And that big pillar thing, I think I need to grab it. And I think I need to jump on it. And he didn't think more than just that. And he ran, took off, and we had a good time. And he grabbed onto this big pillar. Then he comes off. And he comes fine. He says, yo, PJ. He's got scratches all down his arms. He's like, PJ, I guess I didn't think that one all the way through, did I? (laughs) Yeah, you're right, buddy. You're right. But it was fun, wasn't it? Don't think about it. If God says do it, you do it. That mentality, if God says, Noah, go jump on that pillar, guess what? He better go jump on that pillar. But when God says, Noah, go and speak to somebody at school about Jesus, go invite them to church on Sunday, he needs to go jump and do it right then and there. Don't be sitting there thinking, hmm, should I really go tell that person? Should I really go and approach that? Don't go and ask your friend, hey, friend, do you think I should go and talk to that guy over there? He kind of looks a little freaky. I really feel like I'm supposed to go talk. Don't. Just do it. The devil's not telling you to invite someone to church. Amen? And if he is, you're at the wrong church. Okay? (laughs) Don't bring him here. Actually, bring him here. Get him saved. But the reality is this. If we just make God our number one and be hot for God, stop being indifferent. What I do, what I not. Should I or should I not? No. There's no question about it. God says no. It's no. Don't start reading between the lines. There are no lines. It's done. It's been written. It's been done. And it's about to happen. Jesus is coming back one day. You can't stop that. I can't stop that. So guess what? There's more than just the mother of all bombs about to be dropped on countries. It's going to be the nukes. It's going to be more than that. It's going to be the fire from heaven that destroys this earth. And guess what? No president, no dictator is going to stop it. No awesome Christian that's going to come. Well, no, God says to me in a dream that the world will never end. We're here forever and ever. No, don't believe that garbage. This is our foundation. If you're a believer in Christ. So turn to your neighbor and ask him, who's your king? With today being Easter Sunday, it's a wonderful day. And it's not wonderful because you might have got an Easter egg or an Easter basket or whatever you have, you know. And it's not wonderful because you're going to go hang out with family and maybe have an Easter egg hunt. It's the one day that most people our understanding and experiencing the fact that, hey, we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday. Well, my mom taught me it's Resurrection Sunday. It's a day that Jesus Christ rose himself from the grave. It's a day that just a few days before, the Romans captured Jesus. And it's not like they had to go hunt Jesus down. Jesus was hanging out. And it's not like they had to go beat him and put a gun to their head and put a sword to their throat. Jesus, you better come with me. They went. They saw Jesus. Jesus went like this, then he went like this, and walked away, handcuffed. Jesus, whom the Romans thought they can destroy, they whipped him 39 times with the cat of nine tails. 
They beat him. They punched him. They spat in his face. They did all this horrific stuff. He bled so much blood. Then they also put him on the cross and nailed him to the cross. And then they put a spear in his side to make sure that he was really dead. And sure enough, he was already dead. They put him in a tomb. And the Romans are like, yes, we did it. Jesus is gone. All the Pharisees and Sadducees who are supposed to be followers of God, right? They're like, yes, we did it. We did it. For three days, they had that glory. For three days, they thought, we finally put an end to this weird mess of this weird guy doing these crazy miracles. Well, then the Bible says that three days later, John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus foretells the fact that, hey, in three days, I will raise myself up. And in three days, they had a huge stone rolled away that even not one man could do it. Not one man. The Romans had to get a number of guards to put that stone in front of this cave, which is his tomb. But it took one man to speak. It rolled away. And he walks right out of that grave to walk back on earth, to one day go back to heaven. And now that's where he sits at the right hand of the Father. That is why we celebrate Easter Sunday. That. That is the king that you and I should be serving. There's a song I think recently came out. Maybe it just came out of my book. I don't know. What a beautiful name by Hillsong Worship. And it talks about this phrase. It has these lyrics. It says, you have no rival. You have no equal. We sang it this morning with Crystal. You have no rival. You have no equal. All week, I've been blaring this song. Repeat, 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 repeat. You know what I'm saying? Like, just, yo, I'm just getting it. There's something to that. That's what separates Christianity from anything in the world. There is nothing that's going to make you happy. There's nothing that's going to help you get out of your depression. There's nothing that's going to help you get out of, of the turmoil you're in with your family. There's nothing except at the name of Jesus. Stop looking around, friends. Stop trying to grab a hold of all this other stuff that's out there and just tell and declare God, God, this is my king. Your word is my king. Look up to heaven. God, you are my king. Because there is nothing. There is nothing. There is no other man on earth or yet to come to earth that will ever do what Jesus did. There is not one person. There is nothing equal to the name of Jesus Christ. He is the king of all kings. To close here today, there is no rival, there's no equal to Jesus. And knowing that, Jesus provided and made the way to heaven. If Jesus stayed in that tomb, it would have been just like Muhammad. Just another man, just another good prophet. But Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. He rose himself from the grave, which means that there's something different here. There's something different And because of that, he's got power over life, hell, and the grave, which now he gives you access to eternal glory in heaven because Jesus paid your price. He paid my price. Because of that, now you and I are able to get to heaven. But you must believe in him, friends. You must make him your king. Last week, Pastor talked about what hell was like. And let me tell you something. Hell is a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of eternal torment. Hell is a place where the fire will never go out. 
Hell is a place where if you are smart enough to run the opposite direction as fast as you can, you can't run from something like that if you're dabbling in with other things in this life as your king because you feel like you, you want to go after what the world is going after because it looks fun, but yet God's calling you, no, you need to be sold out to serve me. You need to be my son, my daughter, 110%. Stop being lukewarm. Stop being indifferent. So as we close this morning, if you truly believe this, that Jesus Christ is God and he is your king, then we're not here just sitting here praying and worshiping some golden image, some good man. We're not here just preaching about a good man who did really cool stuff. But we're here to worship and bring God glory. Amen. We're here to worship the one and only name, Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ made that way possible for us to get into eternal glory. So every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you know what, Pastor Joe? This king you talk about, this Jesus, whom I really never heard about, I want him to be my savior. I want to make him my king today. I want to say, you know what? I'm done with grabbing at everything else, trying to make my life happy. I'm done. I'm sick of it. I can't find the answers in everything else that the world is giving me. I can't find it in my relationship. I can't find it in the media. I can't find it anywhere. I I just can't find, I can't seem to get myself out of this torment of trying to always please everybody else when I just really want to please God. So if you're here this morning and say, you know what, Pastor Joe, I want to serve God and I want to get saved. I understand that Jesus died on the cross, and I want to live for him. If that's you, you've never been saved before, just slip up your hand. Just slip up your hand, and I'll say a prayer for you. All right, I'm going to ask everybody to open your eyes and stand up, please. The last thing is this, and this is what I really feel, this act of being indifferent, this way of life of saying, well, I want this because I really want it, but I want to please God also, and I'm trying to do both, and it's killing me, Pastor Joe. It's annoying me. My heart was prompted, and I'm like, you know what? I want to start living on fire for God. I want to make God my number one. I want to be on fire for Him. I don't want to dabble in what everybody else is doing. I don't want to look at somebody and say, I want that. I want to look at my God Jesus Christ himself and say I want what he's got I want to please him and only him I don't even want to please my wife I want to please God because when you please God friends your wife will follow your kids will follow your friends will follow people will see something in you that they've never experienced in the world because there's no rival and there's no equal to Jesus Christ So therefore, friends, today, if this is you, what I'm going to have you do is this. And I'm a firm believer. I can't stand. When I was a kid, and even today, I don't like the altar calls and the things that really mean something that we say, okay, just everybody just slip up your hand and and, and just make that happen. What I like to see happen is people who really want God. Who really want God. Especially those who have been following God and now they're falling away and things like that. Because I believe that when you act just like that, spur of the moment, like Noah did, spur of the moment for God, the blessing is so much greater, so much greater than just doing it because your friend's doing it. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to count to three, all right? And when I count to three, if you're here this morning, you say, you know what? I'm sick of being indifferent. I want to be on fire for God. I want God to know 
on Easter in 2017 that I'm declaring in front of man and in front of God that I'm done being indifferent and I'm going to do everything what my God says for me to do. You understand what I'm saying right now? So if that's you here today, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to slip up both hands like this and look to the heavens because that's what we're supposed to do. We're in chaos. We're indifferent right now. We have problems. We don't know what to do. I don't know who to go to. But you're saying, you know what, God? I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on you because redemption is near. Amen? So on the count of three, I just want you to sip up your hands and look up to heaven and declare today to God that you are no longer going to live indifferent. Don't do it because your friend's doing it. Don't do it because your spouse is doing it. Do it because you realize you yourself are messed up and that you need God to help you. No one's pointing fingers, and if they are, who cares? Don't you want to get to heaven, friends? Don't you want to be on fire for God? Then stop being indifferent. You, know, you might be here to say, and you're good, and that's awesome. Praise the Lord. You don't have to be indifferent. God says there's going to be hot people and cold people, and there's going to be lukewarm people. So, but today, this morning, on the count of three, lift up both hands and surrender to God, and then we're going to have a closing prayer. Are you ready? One, two, three. Just lift them up all across. Don't worry. It's all for God. It's all for God. You're hidden glory in creation. And just communicate to God right now what you need to communicate. Let Him know that you are putting your feet on solid rock, that you are going to serve God 110%, and you're not going to let anybody, anybody, anyone, anything get in the way any longer. Enough is enough. Allow God to teach you some things. Allow God to speak to you. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I pray for everybody that has their hands raised. I pray, Father God, that the Spirit of God would be all over them. I pray, God, that when they take their steps out of this place, that they'll no longer be indifferent. I pray that chains would be broken, Father God. I pray things that they used to be a part of, that they would start cutting off real easy, real fast. They won't start thinking about it. Hey, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. God, but they would do exactly what you called them to do at this very moment, Father God. Lord, if it's drugs, if it's alcohol, if it's a relationship that they're not supposed to be a part of, Father God, Lord God, let them understand, let them wake up, and let them be, stop being indifferent and make them strong on fire for you, Father God. Let them establish you as their king in the name of Jesus. Father God, raise up a generation of people who are all about you, and that's it. Lord God, raise up a generation of people, young, old alike, Father God. Lord God, really reaching their schools, their community, their workplace, Father God, because they're on fire for you in the name of Jesus. Father God, we declare this all across the room. Lord God, that you are our king. You are our Father in heaven. And Lord God, please, please guide us to you in the most holy, precious name. And everyone said... Amen, amen. Praise God.